Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. It wasn't until 1980 that a formal diagnosis existed for a set of concerns or obsessions for the condition that is a preoccupation with defects in how a person views their own appearance. That concern can be for an imagined defect or for an exaggerated distortion of a minor defect. Over a hundred years ago, this was considered to be a compulsive neurosis, and it was associated with a sense of shame about one's own body. Now it is given the name of a body dysmorphic disorder, and you will hear us refer to it as BDD. Catherine Phillips is a professor of psychiatry at Brown University. She is also the director of the Body Dysmorphic Disorder Program at Rhode Island Hospital in Providence. Dr. Phillips, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. There is too often a common tendency to call this condition silly. So many times I hear parents look at their kids and say, I don't know where this came from. You're just fine. So it seems that patients have poor insight into the reality of their perceptions, and they believe they are right and we are wrong. We know that BDD people suffer tremendously. So how widespread is the BDD condition, and how do we break the pattern? Well, BDD is much more widespread than most people realize. In fact, studies have shown, quite a few now, that it affects a little bit under 1% to as many as 2.4% of the population. So we're talking about millions of people with this disorder in the United States alone. I think the problem, though, is it's often typically goes unrecognized, and which, which, is a, which is a problem because it's such a severe disorder for so many patients. And one of the reasons it's under-recognized is that patients are often very ashamed and embarrassed about their concerns, and, and you mentioned that it's sometimes seen as silly. And sometimes patients are told this if they get the courage up to say, gosh, I think my nose is really too big or I'm going bald. They may be met with disbelief. People may say, oh, you're vain. There is this misperception that these concerns are silly. I just want to emphasize these are, I've seen a lot of patients over the past several decades, and these patients are among the most disabled. They suffer tremendously. We have only very preliminary data on suicidality, but the data we have suggests that BDD may have the highest suicide rate of any psychiatric disorder. So this is a very, very serious mental illness. It's certainly not vanity or just a silly concern. It's a, it's a serious mental illness. And when you talk about it, the suicide rate being higher, you know, the natural inclination is to say that depression is the major cause of suicide. But now something else, is it a depression within the BDD disorder that's causing it? Or do we not yet know how to separate that? Am I confusing things more than yeah. clarifying it? Well, it's a complicated issue. And I do want to emphasize our data. This is from a study we've done following uh, several hundred patients over five, six years. And it, it's still preliminary. It needs to be confirmed. But I do think that many clinicians who have worked with these patients would agree that they can be highly suicidal. And I know clinicians who've had suicides among these patients. And your question is a very good one. It sort of speaks to the relationship between body dysmorphic disorder and depression. Many of these patients are very depressed. Not all of them, but most of them are quite depressed. And I think for some of them, I think for most of them, BDD appears to be the cause of their depression. They feel that they look ugly. They feel they look deformed. They feel people are making fun of them. 
singling them out of the crowd in a negative way because of how they look, laughing at them. They can become very socially isolated. They can become very depressed. But, of course, it's not that simple because to figure out if BDD is really the cause of the depression is difficult, if not impossible. But this is what patients often say. On the other hand, there are patients who, who have depression. That doesn't seem to be particularly related to BDD. And interestingly, we've done a longitudinal study now where we interview patients annually, and we're able to look at the course of BDD versus the course of comorbid major depression over time. And it's interesting that we find that when BDD gets worse, depression subsequently, within the next few weeks and months, gets worse. So the the worsening of BDD seems to be driving the worsening of depression. But the converse appears as well. So when patients get more depressed, subsequently in the, next, in the following weeks and months, their BDD seems to get worse. So it seems to go in both directions. I think what's important for clinicians to be aware of is that these patients often are depressed and that when depression gets worse, BDD often gets worse, and when BDD gets worse, depression often gets worse. So it's important to monitor depressive symptoms, suicidality symptoms, and also BDD symptoms. I think another important take-home message message, though, is don't assume that BDD is simply depression. I think that's a common misunderstanding of BDD. The treatments are somewhat different, and patients often feel sort of misunderstood if the clinician assumes that. And we also found in our study that when depression remitted in some of these patients, the BDD often didn't. BDD often persisted. And you'd think if BDD is just a symptom of depression, that it would have remitted as well. So it does seem to be a distinct disorder, but one that often goes hand in hand with depression. Then if it is a distinct disorder, which it sounds like it is, what causes it? Do we have any sense of where it comes from? There's not much data at this point on etiology, pathophysiology. There's one preliminary study. I mean, almost certainly it has a genetic contribution, like all psychiatric disorders. There's one small study suggesting that one of the GABA-A receptor genes may be associated with BDD. There's some data suggesting a pretty high prevalence of childhood abuse or neglect in these patients. Of course, we can't say that's etiologically related, but there's an association there. There have been some studies, these are very interesting studies, indicating that people with BDD tend to over-focus on minor details and minor aspects of a visual stimulus. When they look at faces, they overly focus on tiny little details. And these are studies that have been done using something called the Rayosteres complex, a figure test, and an MRI study using faces. And so this is, there's kind of an emerging pattern in this work suggesting that they have trouble seeing the forest for the trees and that they tend to over-focus on very tiny details of their appearance. And we think this is important in BDD. And one of the things we do uh, when we do cognitive behavioral therapy with these patients is try to help them see the big picture and not just zero in and selectively attend to these very minor little details. There's a lot of obsessive compulsive flavor to this or even some narcissistic flavor to it. And I guess there's been a lot of discussion over the years as to is it a variant of of an OCD phenomena? Well, that's a good question. You know, about 100 years ago, Genet thought, Pierre Genet thought so, that it was, uh, I believe he referred to it as obsession with the shame of the body. And over the years, there's been a lot of speculation that BDD may be closely related to obsessive compulsive disorder. And the data that we have, there, there are quite a number of studies now that have directly compared these two disorders, finding both similarities and differences. So some of the notable similarities is that BDD is characterized by these obsessional preoccupations, focused on appearance.
appearance, unlike OCD. And on average, they take about three to eight hours a day that people are obsessing, and they find these preoccupations very hard to control. So much like OCD obsessions, almost all patients perform repetitive compulsive behaviors, such as compulsive mirror checking, excessive grooming, reassurance seeking, skin picking, trying to make their skin look better. Often, unfortunately, they make it look worse. Sometimes this is very dangerous when they pick through blood vessels and start bleeding. And But they find these behaviors very difficult to control. And I, so I think it's the obsessions and sort of compulsive behaviors that makes people think, well, this is a lot like OCD. And I think it is, but there are some important differences. So what we have found is that patients with BDD are more likely to have suicidal thinking and behaviors. They're more likely to be depressed. And a very big, dif- an important difference that's been found in now in a number of studies is that they tend to have poorer insight. So they're more likely to think that they are right, that they really do look ugly, they really do look deformed. Whereas if you ask an OCD patient, well, if you don't check the stove 30 times, how likely is, is it that the house is really going to burn down? Most patients with OCD recognize that their belief probably isn't true. So BDD patients are much more likely to have poor insight or even delusional beliefs. And I I think this is clinically important because I think it can be harder for these patients to recognize they have a psychiatric disorder. They often try and get cosmetic treatment. They go to dermatologists, plastic surgeons, which seems not to work and can have a very poor outcome for both patient and physician. And I think sometimes it's just harder to get them and keep them in treatment. I mean, we do see, psychiatrists see plenty of these patients, but I I think the insight issue can make them a little bit more difficult to treat than patients with OCD. The general assumption has been that this is mostly in women, but it's not. You can even see it in men. Studies have found varying gender ratios. And if I were to put it all to all the data together, I'd say the studies point to slightly more women than men. But I think it's important to realize this disorder does occur in men. And in fact, there's a form of it that occurs almost exclusively in men, something called muscle dysmorphia. These are men who think they look scrawny and puny when in fact they either look normal or some of them are very muscular because they can work out a, a tremendous amount and some of them actually take potentially dangerous anabolic steroids to bulk up. So BDD is is relatively common in men. What about the age range of this? We live in a society Mm -hmm. where younger and younger girls and guys too are under the force of the media and television. They're looking for models. And are we seeing younger and younger children expressing BDD or does it occur even in other cultures at younger ages? Well, you know, it's important to realize that BDD typically starts in early adolescence. The most common age of onset that we've found now in several studies is about age 13. I've seen kids as early, as young as five with very classic BDD and people as old as 80. So it seems to, you know, cover the whole age range. We don't know if it's getting more common in, in, in general or in younger people in particular because the prevalence studies have only been done in very recent years. So it's hard to know if it's increasing in prevalence or affecting younger and younger kids, but I wouldn't be surprised. We talked about etiology. I mean, I, I don't think... I think it's overly simplistic to say that media messages are what causes BDD. I mean, the cause of BDD is certainly complex, involving sort of sociocultural pressures and messages and genetic factors and life events and that sort of thing. But the media may be playing a role here. 
and perhaps is contributing to a higher prevalence of BDD, perhaps an earlier onset of BDD. And culturally, do we see it as much in in other non-Western societies? Do we have any data to that? Well, no. You know, there's only one cross cultural prevalence study that I know of which in college students, which found it was about equally prevalent in the U.S. and in Germany. I would say, it's, so we're sort of lacking cross-cultural okay. prevalence data. I would say, though, it's, it's a well-known disorder in Japan. It's been well-known there for a long time. It's been reported around the world, and it's been reported, I know, I've heard from colleagues about cases from very remote villages in Africa where the patient had no exposure to the media at all um, or any Western influence. So it really seems to be a disorder that, that crosses all cultures around the world, probably. And that, of course, leads into the notion of treatment, because if mm-hmm. there is something that's non-cultural, if it's not so much a psychosocial phenomena, although that'll be part of it, it offers a different mechanism of how one approaches treatment. And that's what I wanted to get to. How is it treated? What works? What doesn't work? Well, there are currently two different forms of treatment are currently recommended as first-line treatments for body dysmorphic disorder. One is serotonin reuptake inhibitors. These medications have been shown now in quite a number of studies to randomized controlled trials and open-label trials to often be efficacious for BDD. I think these studies, as well as clinical experience, suggest that higher doses are often needed than are typically used for disorders like depression. And the other form of treatment that's recommended is cognitive behavioral therapy that specifically targets BDD symptoms. So the approach that is recommended consists of cognitive work, cognitive restructuring to try to modify these inaccurate beliefs about being ugly, as well as inaccurate core beliefs like I'm worthless, I'm unlovable. The behavioral approaches consist of ritual prevention where we help patients learn how to cut down on their very time-consuming compulsive rituals like excessive mirror checking or reassurance seeking. And exposure therapy, which involves helping patients feel more comfortable in social situations, avoid fewer social situations. So those are the two recommended forms of treatment. At this point, we do not recommend cosmetic treatment, which we've now found in several studies most people with BDD receive at some point. Most often dermatologic treatment, because skin and hair concerns are the most common concerns in BDD, followed by plastic surgery. Uh, Some go to see dentists for their teeth or get other kinds of cosmetic treatment. And as best we know, cosmetic treatment really shouldn't be used for BDD. These patients tend not to get better, and they they sometimes get worse, actually. And I think what's important to keep in mind is BDD is a psychiatric disorder. It involves excessive preoccupation, a tendency to over-focus on minor or not even non-existent flaws. So if you change the surface of the body with a cosmetic procedure, the tendency to obsess and to worry and over-focus and selectively attend to very minor or even non-existent things persists. It happens at times, uh cosmetic surgery fails. It can make things worse. And then it keeps these people under the psychiatric radar, so to speak. Yes, yes. And some of them have multiple, multiple surgeries. I've seen patients who've had five or six nose jobs and they're just miserable, as is the surgeon, because objectively the outcome with the procedure is typically fine, but the patient doesn't like Mm -hmm. it. Occasionally they're violent towards the surgeon or or sue the surgeon, and and that's a very unfortunate outcome for both the surgeon and the patient. One of the concepts that comes out of cognitive behavioral therapy is is the notion of habit reversal. And it's teaching Mm -hmm. someone to reverse some of these habits that they fall into over and over and over again. And it's hard work, but it's not impossible. 
Yes, and you know, we use habit reversal specifically for the skin picking, the compulsive skin picking, and for hair plucking that some of these patients do. You know, they often think their eyebrows are uneven or too bushy or that they have tons of facial or body hair, so they'll spend a lot of time trying to pluck out all these hairs. And habit reversal, where you come up with, it's a multi-step process, but you come up with a competing response, do something different with your hands, for example, that can be helpful for these behaviors. You spoke of the possible delusional component to this when people aren't seeing it clearly and, and they're yeah. they're stuck with it. And nowadays we use antipsychotics to augment antidepressants, in particular the one that's on television a lot now is Abilify. And as I say this next comment for people who are listening, clearly any treatment decision has to be the product of a patient and the doctor, not merely what we're talking about here. It's very important that this be done individually with your own doctor. But if there is a delusional component to it, isn't it interesting that adding Abilify might reduce some of the delusional material. It's like going back to the old days when we had Etrifon and Triavil. Well, you know, it's very interesting. There's very little research on whether adding uh, an antipsychotic, also known as a neuroleptic, actually helps delusional BDD. I did one study in which we added pimazide, the antipsychotic pimazide, to the SRI, the serotonin reuptake inhibitor fluoxetine, and it didn't seem to help. And the most interesting thing is all the, all the studies that have been done with the serotonin reuptake inhibitor alone, no other medication, patients weren't taking any other medications, all these studies have found that delusional BDD improves as much as non-delusional BDD. And, and in a way, that's really good news because the serotonin reuptake inhibitors tend to be well tolerated, tend to be better tolerated than the antipsychotics. And it appears that most patients, you know, the patients really do just as well just with, with, with an SRI. So currently, we recommend only a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, even for delusional BDD. And then I think it's an, a bit of an open question whether adding in an antipsychotic medication like Gabilify might be helpful. We really need more research. It's a really important question. One of the most important things in almost all psychiatric disorders is to find it early and to intervene as early as we can. So if a family is suspecting that their child is beginning to show something that's odd, we'll use the word odd to start with, and it may turn out to be body dysmorphic disorder, Mm -hmm. what sort of questions should the parents be thinking about or asking to give them a clue? So I think the the most important thing is become familiar with BDD. There are good websites out there. I encourage you to visit my own website. Please give us the address www.bddprogram.com. Okay. And I, I don't mean to overly promote my own work, but I have written books on BDD for both professionals and the public, a book in 2009 really geared towards the public, which I hope is helpful to people. The most important thing is to really take any appearance concerns that a child or teenager might express seriously. You, you know, listen. And if you see the clues to BDD, like a lot of mirror checking or not wanting to go out of the house because they say they look ugly. Listen, take it seriously. Don't try to talk them out of their concerns by saying, oh, you're, you're pretty, don't worry about it. Or don't, certainly don't tease them. Just sit down and listen and say, I'd like to hear what you're worried about. Ask about their symptoms. And then take them to a professional who's familiar with BDD and can provide effective treatment. I mean, BDD is a serious illness and it often does get better with the treatments I've discussed today. And so one of the multiple take-home messages to use the phrase again and again is to do something about it. If you're a parent, do something, just don't watch it. Step in, learn about it, make a move. 
Exactly. And don't assume it's a phase that your child is going through because they're a teenager. Certainly, if if their appearance concerns seem to be interfering with their day-to-day functioning, that's that's a warning sign. If they're reluctant to go to school or they don't go to school, their grades are falling or they don't want to see their friends or if they're very distressed or if they seem to be getting depressed over how they look, these are signs that they may have well have the disorder BDD as opposed to more normal passing concerns that adolescents might have about how they look. Catherine Phillips is a professor of psychiatry at Brown University. She is also the director of the Body Dysmorphic Disorder Program at Rhode Island Hospital in Providence. Thank you so much for being with us. This has been really interesting. Thank you. Have a good day. Thanks, you too.